This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. We'll be continuing our series in Galatians, and this morning's reading is from chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. I'll read it for us. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, rather be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days, months, and seasons and years, and I'm afraid that I may have labored over you in vain. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning we're looking at a short but rather remarkable passage. It's chock full of amazing insights, but it's couched in a rather startling question, which is really a warning. Now last week we learned in Galatians chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 that while we were enslaved to sin, dead to sin, our Heavenly Father moved towards us in love and compassion. And in that love he sent Jesus, his Son, who willingly came to redeem us meaning he died for us, meaning he bought us back from sin and death by dying as a sacrifice for our sins. And in doing so, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit adopted us as sons. And the Father, with Jesus, took the Holy Spirit Spirit and put him deep within us. And from that place, the Holy Spirit is crying out, Abba, Father. From that place, the Holy Spirit is uniting us to Jesus, From that place, the Holy Spirit is helping us to live out our sonship and even give us the words and the faith to be able to go to our Heavenly Father and say, Daddy, I need you. And in doing so, the Holy Spirit and the Father and Son have made us co-heirs with Christ. Now think about that reality. Right now, Jesus is king of the universe. He's on his heavenly throne room and he rules over all things. And we have the same rights and privileges of the king of the universe. Which begs the question, why are these realities so rarely on our hearts? Why are our experiences of these profound blessings so remote? What keeps these weighty thoughts and realities so distant from our soul? Now Paul makes the answer abundantly clear for us in the three verses we're looking at this morning. Religion. Now, religion's a tricky word. The word's actually rather hard to define. We all have sort of a tacit or implicit understanding of this word, but most of us have struggled to write a cogent definition. You need to know that the word religion is hardly used in the Bible. And when it is used, it's almost always used in a very negative context, except by the author of James. Now, let me give you a definition. In the most simplest terms for the purpose of sermon Religion is based on performance and achievement to acquire something from God. Religion is trying to obtain a standing before God through moral human efforts. See, in religion, one obeys and performs for God to be accepted or loved or cherished. In religion, one moves towards God out of fear or anxiety or guilt, trying to repair or cover up which feels tenuous and broken. In religion, one's identity and self-worth is wrapped up in their morality and hard work. In religion, one's significance and happiness and meaning is based directly on their spiritual performance, which we all know leads to either really high highs or low lows. In religion, one performs well. It leads to pride and superiority and 
undue confidence. In religion, one performs poorly. It leads to insecurity and inadequacy. In religion, one performs for God so that God performs for him. Now, none of this has anything to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to know that religion is the arch enemy of the gospel. Religion is working against the Holy Spirit's work in your lives. Religion deprives you of freedom and joy that's yours in Christ. For those of you who are followers of Jesus in this room, religion, we can see from chapter 4, is exchanging your sonship and all that means for slavery. Paul is so concerned about the insidious nature of religion that he states in verse 11, our passage this morning, I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Religion is so treacherous, it's so deceptive, Paul feels like his work with the Galatian church has been ineffective and worthless and hopeless and futile. Like the Galatians, the religion we create around the gospel robs us from experiencing the power of the gospel. Paul's in a simple mission in these verses. Paul wants the Galatians and, and us through this letter to flee from religion and run back to the gospel. So this morning we're going to use the following outline to get the seminal idea into our hearts. We'll look at our propensity towards religion, our enslavement in religion, and our freedom from religion. Propensity towards religion, enslavement in religion, and our freedom from religion. So first, our propensity towards religion. Do you ever wonder why we have a proclivity, an inclination, a bent towards, a propensity towards religion? I mean, for those of you who are followers of Christ, no matter whether you had a religious or religious background before you met Jesus, I think we all struggle to make Christianity a religion. No matter how much you detest religious people, you occasionally find yourself acting like one, and sometimes that actually doesn't horrify you. If you did City Bible Reading this week, City Bible Reading is our initiative where we read the scriptures together. We read from Acts 15 and 19. Isn't it amazing that every church the ball planted in Asia Minor between Acts chapter 15 and 19, within years and in some cases months, struggled making the gospel into a religion? You know, my story with the gospel is much like the Galatian churches, and it has three phases. So as I use these three phases, you'll see this repeat again with the Galatians. Phase one, the religion of pagan idol worship. For me, even though I was born and raised in North Carolina, I was raised in a very moralistic, religious Hindu home. And my parents were so Hindu and so religious that we had a room, a shrine room, totally dedicated to the deities of my mom's picking. And the centerpiece of all those in the shrine room of all the deities was this little statuerine about this big called Gopal, which is technically the infant child form of Krishna. For those of you who are new to Hinduism, he's part of the big three in Hinduism. And so there's all these rituals and what you're supposed to do for little Gopa in the morning, midday, lunch, afternoon, and in the evening. And my mom's life was centered around that darn little statue. And then there's Durga. She's kind of like the mother of the universe in Hinduism. She's typically depicted fair-skinned with a big smile and multiple arms and occasionally riding a tiger, which I thought was really cool. And she's the centerpiece of the Diwali festival, which is the festival of lights, which is really fun and colorful. And it's kind of like their Halloween and Christmas all put together. And it takes care of the entire autumn every year. Now, if you're from the state of Bengal, like I was, where Calcutta is, the Durga Puja ended, or the Diwali festival ran into the Kali Puja, or the Kali ceremony, where we worshiped the goddess of destruction, I guess. Now, Kali is terrifying. She's typically depicted in blue. She has multiple arms. She does not have a smile. 
and three or four of her arms, she's holding like swords and daggers and stuff. In the other couple hands, she's holding like severed heads. Okay, now, every year I'd be absolutely terrified of that ceremony because you're looking at a life-size structure of this, this, this Kali. And I, I was pretty sure my parents made me worship Kali just to scare the, the bejeebies out of me. So Hinduism is built around a calendar which had rhythm and special days and festivals and special offerings and rites. And it had a massive impact on me. Sure, I was more moral than most of my peers at a young age. But I was filled with fear and insecurity and anxiety. And I kept asking myself, am I good enough? Then there was phase two. I exchanged the religion of pagan idol worship for the gospel. Thanks to the Fellowship of Christian Athletes and Coach Jimmy Weekman and my good friend Julie Stafford, who's now Julie Story, I came to know Jesus, or rather be known by Jesus. I began to see that there was no end to my sin, and there's nothing I could do to clean myself up. And no matter how good I was, it was never enough. But rather in the gospel, there's free grace and unending love and unmerited forgiveness. And I can have real perfect standing with my Heavenly Father. Now this created... A massive impact in my life. I remember when I first received Jesus sitting in my, my bedroom. The sun was coming in. It was a warm spring day. But the heat I was feeling inside was so much stronger. There was freedom and worship and joy and thanksgiving and faith. But then phase three, there's trying to turn Christianity back into religion, even in a good church. I went back to slavery. I went back to religion. It looked like Christianity. It looked biblical, meaning I could see that stuff in the Bible, but there's all these new things to figure out. There's new doctrines to learn. I was in a Presbyterian church. There's stuff like the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin and the Westminster Confession of Faith and Shorter and Larger Catechism. And what's a catechism? And man, I got to read all this stuff. And it's overwhelming. And suddenly there's a calendar to keep in special days. I remember my first Maudie Thursday service. I kept asking, what does Maudie mean? I don't understand this new day. And then I went to my first Good Friday service. And in the middle of the service, I was like, this doesn't really feel all that good. And then I went to my first Easter service. And I'd never seen so many hats and gloves and pastel dresses in my life. And no one gave me the memo, I'm not supposed to wear jeans on Easter. And then there was Advent. I've been a Christian for 24 years. I'm still not exactly sure what Advent is or why we do it, but I realized it was a really important thing. See, there's a calendar to keep now, and there's rituals to embrace, and there's authors to read and quote if I'm going to have any voice, and there's now people to know and listen to, and there's practices to do. And then my religion started having a massive impact on my life. Fear, insecurity, and anxiety. And I started asking myself, am I good enough? You know, the Galatian church had the same three phases. Phase one, they had the religion of pagan, pagan idol worship. Look at verse eight with me. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, the Galatians had a pantheon of idols that they worshiped in Galatia. But the chief of the, the, the pantheon for them was a fertility goddess. And there's an elaborate system connected with the movements of the sun and moon, which creates special days and seasons and festivals and rites, and it had a massive impact on them. As you can see from the text, they were enslaved to these non-gods. Then there was phase two, the gospel. Verse 9, but now that you've come to know God, or rather be known by God. 
Oh, through the apostle Paul and the preaching of the gospel, the gospel invaded their lives and the Holy Spirit came and gave them faith. And now they were known by God and they had nothing to hide and they were fully loved. And this had a massive impact on them. We can see from Paul's letter to the church in Galatia that at one point they were filled with inexpressible joy and grand freedom. Oh, but then there was phase three for them as well. Trying to turn the gospel back into a religion even in a good church. Look at verse nine. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? Now, this is an amazing insight from Paul. What did the Galatians church turn back to? Pagan idol worship? No. They turned back to religion. They turned away from the gospel to like a biblical legalism. They, they started with the gospel, but quickly turned to something else. It sort of looked and smelled like the gospel, but it it was a road to bondage. They were in a new slavery, and they did it willingly. They went away from a calendar of religious events built around a fertility god to another calendar of events built around Jewish feasts, such as the Passover and the Feast of Booths and new moon festivals and specific forms of weekly Sabbath, which is why Paul said in verse 10, you observe days months, seasons, and years. And you kind of get the feel from verse 10. He's not being really excited about that reality. Now look at what Paul does. He connects their biblically clothed religion centered around Jewish customs to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. Their new religion was no better than or equal to the non-gods they used to worship when they're pagan idol worshipers. Not only that, this newfound religion is just as slaving and idolatrous. When they're pagans, they made an idol out of their fertility god. And now in this biblical, weird, legalistic Christianity, they're making an idol out of their moral achievement and their morality. Paul's making it very clear that in even a biblically clothed religion is literally detrimental to your soul. So why did the Galatians do this? It's the same reasons we do this. We have a propensity to religion. Now, here's four quick reasons I came up with why we have a propensity to religion. First is culture. Everything we experience in the world literally around us is merit-based. We obey to be accepted. We perform to get in. Think about it. School is performance-based, or you flunk. Work is performance-based, or you're fired. Even our parents treated us often in a performance-based mentality. Now, if we succeeded in schoolwork or athletics or behavior, we were in. But if we didn't, we were out. And even the us in this room, <clears throat> marriage. Think about how many broken marriages there are in this room where the marriages are built on performance and not love and grace. You see, we experience so little grace and love and unconditional merit in the real world that we, we have a hard time taking God at his word that it's not about religion and performance, about his love and grace. So the first reason we have propensity to religion is culture. The second is contribution. I am alliterating. We want to contribute to our salvation. We are constantly trying to save ourselves. We perform to get good standing. We love to earn things. We hate to depend on anyone else. Let me introduce you to another Hindu concept here. Darshan. So if you go to any Hindu temple, there's all these statues of whatever various deities. And the concept of darshan is you show up in a temple and you clean up. You get all religious. You get all holy. And you perform in the eyesight 
uh, these idols and you're hoping that the gods, whoever they are, are seeing you through those idols and superstitiously you're hoping they'll bless you because you're being really holy and religious in that moment. You know, sometimes when I watch myself and other Christians, I'm like, man, we're a bunch of Hindus. We often live our Christian lives hoping that God only sees the good when we clean up. So when we go to community group, when we go to worship, when we go to hang out with other Christians, we clean up, we put the mask on, we straighten up, we get holy and religious, and we're just hoping God sees that so he'll bless us. As if he doesn't see anything else we do or think or say the rest of the day or week. As if our little bit of good and cleaning up outweighs all the horrendous things we've done the rest of the week. You see, world religions are built on what you do especially Hinduism, but it's also especially true of the Christianity that we create. A matter of fact, I was recently talking with a young woman who's a Hindu, and she's telling me how exclusive Christianity is, how inclusive Hinduism is. I was like, whoa, 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 we got to stop here. All world religions are exclusive, every one of them. Now, the real question is what they're exclusive about. She was with me on that one. And then I said, this is where I went for the, like, you know, the punch here. I was like, Hinduism is more exclusive than Christianity. She didn't like that, and I expanded on that. Now, in Hinduism, your goal is to get out of the world, to detach from the world, to be perfect, to be brilliant, to be moral, to be, to be totally so connected to God that you're detached from everything around you, and you're just perfect and spotless. And so I said, so the goal in Hinduism is to be absolutely good and perfect, right? She's like, yes. So who do you exclude? I don't know. You exclude everyone that's bad. You have to be good to get in. And if you're bad, you're out. That's pretty exclusive. Christianity has it all turned around. Christianity says if you come and think you got it all together and you're okay, you don't need a doctor, you're not sick, you're out. Because Christianity understands, the gospel understands that we're all morally messed up. We're all morally fail. We're in deep need of saving and loving and helping. And you know who gets in? The corrupt who realize with humility and faith they're really messed up and they need total saving. So in Christianity, the, kind of paradoxically, the good are out and the bad are in. Now, every world religion thinks you need to contribute something except for the gospel. In the gospel, you realize there's nothing to contribute. The third reason we have a propensity religion is not only culture and contribution, but it's comfort. See, in religion, we love to create standards and norms so we can get in. Religion is an easy way to feel good about ourselves and bring comfort to our souls. So we're all shrewd. We show up in a religious community like this. We kind of figure out what the standards and norms of behavior are and what's accepted. And we kind of create a standard for ourselves, kind of in the mean. And so that way, if we can meet that standard, we go like, ah, I'm doing well. And if we feel good, and it's awesome. And then if we meet that standard and we see other people who aren't meeting that standard, it's like license to compare ourselves and to internally criticize them and feel good about ourselves. It's like getting a quick hit of righteousness. It's like we kind of like drug up and it's an easy way to get a religious high. This is what we do in religion. But not only is it culture, contribution, and comfort that leads us to propensity for religion, it's control. Religion is the easy way to control the gods we create. We perform so that God has to perform for us. We're good. We perform so he owes us for being good. Recently, a dear couple I knew as college students when I would pastor a church in Chapel Hill, they called me out of the blue, and I could feel the pain in their voice. As they were talking with me, they'd been married for multiple years, and they're trying to have a baby, and they're unable. 
And, and I still remember the haunting words of this young lady. She literally said this, why won't Jesus let us have a baby? Well, it was easy to have compassion on her. And then she said this and it hit me like a ton of bricks. We're one of the good guys. We serve him faithfully. We kept our marriage pure until we knew each other in a biblical sense. We, we, God gives babies to all sorts of people who don't deserve it, but we do. Now, I've heard those same phrases used about jobs and spouses and career advancement in homes. Now, I'm a pastor, so I know better to say that out loud, but I hear my heart say the exact same thing. We perform so that you have to perform, God. We're good, and we served you, so now you got to serve us. We make deals with God and religion. We perform not for his glory in response to his love so we can control him. Whether it's culture or contributions, comfort or control, we have a massive propensity to religion. And now that we've seen our propensity for religion, I want us to briefly look at our second point, our enslavement in religion. Our enslavement in religion. The Bible is clear. We're enslaved, enslaved in religion. But exactly what are we enslaved to? Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you do not know God, you are enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Now, it's more than idols, right? These non-gods. I mean, let's face it. Statues, pictures, carvings, they can't enslave you. They're inanimate objects. They have absolutely no power. But there are spiritual realities or demons behind them that can enslave you. Look at verse 9. But how can you turn back to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? It's hard to be enslaved to a principle. I know we can get all ideological and bent out of shape about stuff, but how do you get enslaved to a principle, an idea? Now, the best and natural, most translation, best natural translation for the word principle is actually rather the word spirit. It's so much better of a rendering, we almost changed the text for your reading, but then we didn't want to change your translation and create confusion. But my point is, it probably should be written spirit. So let me remind you what Paul said in Ephesians 6, 11 through 12. I'm going to read it slowly for us. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Look, in the last two minutes, a good number of you got really nervous. Some of you because you're Presbyterian and I'm talking about Satan. Some of you because you're cynical about spiritual realities. And the others of you because you don't want to think that you could be a slave to Satan's minions right now. Let's think big picture for a moment. If Satan wants to take away your joy and your freedom and your power, a simple temptation and leading you to get religious is far more effective than anything else he could do. Think about it. If, if Satan wants to stop the spread of the gospel, what's his best angle? It's not persecuting the church. No, because if you persecute the church, they're going to pray and they're going to run to Jesus and they're going to hide in him and then they're going to grow like wildfire and think China. I know Satan's really regretting that. But now there's an easier strategy. It's a clever misdirection. 
is to get them religious. Because if you get them religious, they're going to lose their joy and their peace and power. And they'll get proud and self-righteous. And then they'll start, start infighting. And no one will want anything to do with them. And they'll be mock-worthy. Uh, one of the things I love to do is watch uh, John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. And I've had a hard time watching them over the last couple of months because they mock Christianity incessantly. But I don't get on to them for that because we give them so much mock-worthy material. C.S. Lewis understood this quite well. In addition to writing Narnia series to help us understand the gospel, during World War II, he wrote the screw tape letters to teach us about spiritual warfare. The story is about a mentoring relationship, or a, it's fiction, a discipleship relationship. There's a senior demon, Screwtape, and he has his understudy, his nephew, Wormwood, who's a junior tempter. And in this series of letters in the story, the uncle, um, Screwtape, is mentoring his nephew in his new responsibility with a British man, a Christian that they call the patient. In the 12th letter uh, from Screwtape to Wormwood, he wrote this. I'm almost glad to hear that he, referring to the patient, is still a churchgoer and a communicant. You see that? A demon's glad. Why? Because religion is his chief ally. Now, again, back to the text. I know there are dangers in this. Rap, you know, he's like, yeah, if they start preaching the gospel, bad things are going to happen. But anything is better than he should realize the break, meaning the change or departure he has made with his first months in the Christian life. Screwtape understands that if he can subtly take the Christian eyes off of Jesus and into religion, he wins. Still don't believe me? Look at Matthew chapter 5. When Satan tries to tempt Jesus, how does he try to tempt Jesus? With the Bible and religion. He tries to use the word of God on the word of God. Satan and his minions want you to focus on religion. Why? Because in the gospel, the focus is on Jesus and his unending love and his grace and his compassion. But in religion, the focus is on you and what you do and on your works. And none of those things breed joy and freedom and thanksgiving because none of those things have anything to do with the gospel. <clears throat> now, I got to be honest with you. I'm a recovering religious man. You know, uh, I, I, I could say I'm downright a religious addict. Uh, working on this text has not been fun for me. And I've been preaching this sermon more to me than anyone else in this room. As I've been thinking about it, when I've had peaks of being really religious, and then I've had periods of time where I've not been religious at all, I've been living in the gospel, what's been a key ingredient for me to battle against religion? Well, it's been speaking up in gospel community, but more importantly, it's been other people speaking into my life. Right now, there's just some hard situations going on in the church where there's addictions to various things. And I've been watching men and women rally around these addicts. And it's been beautiful to watch God renewing people in our church. And then as I've been thinking about my religiosity, my religion, I'm realizing one of my failings in recovering from my addiction to religion is not surrounding myself with men and women who have the freedom to speak up and call me out on my religion. What about you? To what degree do you see religion as the arch enemy of the gospel? To what degree do you see your religious failings? And what degree do you allow other men and women to love you and speak up about what they see religion in your life? If you're struggling right now like me in being with religious, you need to know there are spiritual forces right now working to enslave you. 
you may be asking, am I trying to scare you? Absolutely. Because this is a big deal. We've seen our propensity towards religion. We now see our enslavement in religion. But now let's end by looking at our freedom from religion. Verse 9. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, the Christian life does involve intimate personal knowledge of God. The word know is not just cognitive knowledge, but it's personal, and it's relational, and it's intimate. It's not knowing stuff about God, but having intimate and direct relationship with him. But what's primary in this text? Our knowledge of him or his knowledge of you? When you look at the text, it says, rather to be known by God. Being known by God is clearly, his knowledge of you is clearly primary. It's what actually makes you a Christian. Not your knowledge of him, but his knowledge of you and his hold of you. Now think about this. God knows everything about you. Nothing is hidden from him, yet he loves you. There's no need to brace for shame and rejection. He sees everything, yet you're safe. Why? Not just safe, but treasured. How can that be? Think about the cross. The most intimate person to the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, was cursed. No one person in the universe knew the Father better. No one knew the Father's delight and smile like Jesus. Yet Jesus was forsaken so that you could be relished and enjoyed. He was rejected so that you could be enjoyed. He was literally crushed on the cross by the wrath of the Father so that the Father, our Father in heaven, could be wild about you and thoroughly enjoy you as well. This was the joy that was set before Jesus when he endured the cross to give us his Father, to give you his Father's perfect love, to give you the Holy Spirit and to make you a son and daughter and to keep you safe for eternity. Religion is slavery because the focus is on you. Think about it. You get anxious because you wonder if you know him well enough and it's never deep enough, is it? You get insecure because you examine the fortitude of your grip on God, and it's never strong enough, is it? You get fearful because you look at the strength of your faith in him, and it always falls short. You get restless because you wonder if you bring enough to your relationship with your heavenly Father, and it's always found wanting. But the gospel is about God knowing us. We're liberated to rest not in our love for him, but his perfect love for us. We're released to examine not our grip on him, but his perfect grip and hold on us. We're unshackled to analyze not our contributions to our standing with God, which is absolutely nothing, but his contributions to our salvation and standing before him, which is complete and full and amazing because Jesus on the cross said, in his finish. And all that is necessary to make us whole with our heavenly father has been done for us. This week, when you read your Bible, when you meditate, when you pray, when you talk with others, don't waste a minute thinking about your love for him. It's a horrendous exercise. Rather, get lost in God's perfect, deep, unfathomable love for you. In that place, there's no room for religion. In that place, there's no end to the joy and freedom you will find. Because when you go to that place, you see that you're lost in the volume of God's love And he is looking at you with the most amazing delight. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we confess uh, that we're religious. And we look to all these man-made things we create 
to create an identity for ourselves. And in the midst of our religion, we're so self-consumed and we lose out on the joy and the power that's for us in the gospel. Holy Spirit, would you work against our tendencies to look at ourselves? And would you give us eyes to look at Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith? Would you help us to look to the one that not only died for us, but right now is praying for us and living for us, who one day will receive us in the heavenly kingdom, for one day who will make us perfect and give us his glory? Will you give us eyes to see our loving heavenly father who right now delights over us and is well pleased with us? Would you help us to hear you crying out, Abba, Father, in the midst of us and give us faith to pray that same prayer? Lord, we, we want to be free from the shackles of religion. Would you expose it in our life and help us to run to the gospel and find our home only there? And would you work within our gospel community at New City and give us community where we pick on each other's religion and hold each other's hands and take each other to the gospel until the gospel burns deep and large in our hearts. And we pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.